Well, many of you know today we vote on uh, some expansion to this room to be able to accommodate more for those who come to our church for worship. Uh, you may not see maybe the need in this room, but if you've been with us several months, you've seen that even this gathering has grown. But the 11 o'clock gathering, it is becoming more and more difficult for people to find a seat. And uh, so our leadership has chosen to basically revamp the room, uh, build the stage up, and add more seating in the back. And we'll be voting on that right after this sermon. Uh, but let me just say this. Many of you may say, well, what's the hurry? What's the need? Well, let me, let me tell you this, and I was shocked when I discovered this on Thursday. Since October, we've had just over 100 people join our church. And uh, yeah, and it is pretty amazing when you see that. Uh, 37 of those, by the time we have our next baptism next Sunday, 37 of those will come through baptism. And that is even greater uh, to hear those who are coming to the Lord. And so I, I just want to remind you just to be praying about that vote here in just a moment. Uh, but it's definitely something that we feel we need to do as we move forward uh, to reach more people in this county. So uh, just thank you for being a part of that. Well, today I want to talk to you about something, but I want to use it in a way that uh, the way I want to start this is the idea of to tell the truth. How many of you remember the game show to tell the truth? Many of you may not know that it actually started in December of 1958. And basically the, the whole idea of the game show was there's a story that's told about a certain individual there's four panelists who ask questions concerning their story, and the questions are directed to determine who the real person is with that story. And then there's two imposters that are answering questions also. Then at the end of the questioning, the panelists vote on who the real person of the story is, and it always is presented like this. Will the real such and such Please stand up. How many of you remember that? Okay. What I want to do and what I've attempted to do with this whole sermon series is I want to present Jesus just as he says he is. I want to show you through God's word that it's not an imposter that we're talking about. Even though there's many imposter Jesuses that are out there and the way he's described, but what I want to do, especially this morning, is I want to show you from the pages of God's Word through the Gospels who Jesus says he was. And I want to use his own words and, and the words of others to describe who he truly is. And of course, the sermon series is Jesus like no other. And so my goal through his miraculous birth, through Jonathan presenting last week, his exclusive way, and then today, his extraordinary words, what I want to do is paint the picture of who the true Jesus is, the one who was and is to come. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 6, John chapter 6. Now, let me just tell you this. This morning is basically a glorified Bible study. I'm going, to, I'm going to take you through the Gospels. We're going to look at uh, probably all the, well, we're definitely going to look at Mark, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John before we're done. But again, my goal is to present you who Jesus truly is. Not the imposter Jesus that we hear out there, but who he really is. Now, Jesus did many things to prove his deity. I, I think we would all agree with that. The miracles, overcoming death, that's a pretty big one there. 
But what about what he said? Look at the introduction on your outline. Most, much of the proof of Jesus' deity is found in the authority of his words. The extreme measure of his superior intelligence is also found in his simplistic communication with others. And then we come to this whole idea. No person who ever lived or ever will live was and is as he. No one. No one who's ever lived. No one who will come later will be like him. Now, here's, here's where many of us are. If, if you were probably born in the South, and many of you are, maybe even the North. I'll give the North a little credit on this, too. But the point is, there's probably never been a memory that you don't know of someone named Jesus. Would I, is that pretty much true? Here in the U.S., I mean, it's over the airwaves, it's everywhere. The name of Jesus is clearly there. And for me, as I said, as I introduced this whole series, I was saved when I was eight years old. I was raised in a home in, in which the name of Jesus was spoken. The name of Jesus was promoted, if you want to say. And, and, and so many of us who have been saved for so long, or maybe as a child, I think so many things about God and about who Jesus is, we take for granted. We just say, yeah, he was deity, he was God, so there, that covers everything. But really, do we really know who he really was? Let's listen to who he says he is in this sermon this morning. So the first thing I want us to understand or see what Jesus said are the I am words. The I am words basically is talking about his, not only his character, but also his provision. When you look at the phrase, I am, it's first introduced in Exodus chapter 3. It is basically how God desired Moses to introduce himself to Pharaoh. How many of you remember the story? You probably saw the movie, The Ten Commandments, right? But the point was, we had this story of of. of, of Basically, Moses going to Pharaoh and, and Moses saying, well, who do I say sent, sent me? Well, you just tell him I am sent you. What is that supposed to mean? What was God really saying there? He's basically, this is talking about his timeless existence. He is ever-present existence. Uh, the fact that he, uh, he's saying, I was, I am, I will be. It literally describes his completeness. And not only his completeness, it's the fact that he's outside of creation. He's basically saying that. I'm not a part of creation. I'm not a part of the same substance you are, Pharaoh. Moses, you need to get this too. But I am above it all. Boy, you're talking about authority. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus basically equates himself to that phrase, I am. But then he begins to reveal more of who he is, his character. And, of course, we know when we see Jesus, we've seen God. So God's character is demonstrated and presented through the life of Jesus. But in these phrases he's about to use, he's also talking about his provision for us. So what do we see? What, what, what's the first thing we see? Well, first of all, in John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. Look at verse 35 of John chapter 6. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He's talking about those that he fed on that day and, and many were filled and, and they were there. They were listening to him speak. And basically he's, he's basically saying, you know something? I am the bread of life. I can furnish this because of that. But then he says this, he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never 
thirst. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus offers himself as the bread of life to literally to fulfill the deeper longings and our eternal need. That's what he's saying there. So he's basically saying, I am. What's the whole idea of I am? The idea of I am is I was, I am, and I will be. And he's basically saying, if you find your substance in me, you have who I am. Who I am. He's taking you beyond time into timelessness and completeness and total satisfaction. That's what he's trying to tell us here, if we believe in him. And then it doesn't stop there. He says, I'm the light of the world in John chapter 8. So turn over to John chapter 8. Look at verse 12. It says, then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Y'all, that's a pretty bold statement. Where do you see light? <laughs> you, you see it everywhere in its physical presence. But he's not only talking about the whole idea of physical light. He's talking about those things that are within us and those things he wants to bestow upon us. And he says this, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Think of this. Light is, 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 was the most prominent theme you find in the gospel of John. And he's basically saying the world is hopeless, uh, it's lost, and it's walking in darkness. But the point is this. The darkness cannot change its condition. Have you ever thought of that? Darkness can't change its condition. Only light, when it's rendered to it, can change the condition of darkness. Jesus is literally saying, I am that person. Now again, we've always known Jesus. We've always heard the phrases that Jesus said. But think about the impact of what he's truly saying here. He's saying, I am. He's literally talking about the completeness of who he is. He's talking about that he is beyond creation. He's beyond all that. He has the potential to bring what's outside of creation into the hearts of men and women. Think about that. That's powerful. Next, he says, I'm the door to salvation. In John chapter 10, if you flip over a couple pages, verse 9, he says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now think about this. He's basically saying, I'm the door. You come through me. You come through me. You found everything you need. You come through me. You found the substance that is beyond this world. You come through me and, and you'll find what I'm truly wanting to give you. And he's basically saying this. He is the one who gathers the sheep cares for them, and he is also the means by which they enter and are kept safe. Now think about that. That's powerful when you think about it. Jesus is saying, that's who I am. Next, he says, I'm the good shepherd to the sheep. In John chapter 10, look at verse 11. He just comes out and says, it. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, did he do that? Absolutely. Skip down to verse 14. He says, I'm the good shepherd. He says it once again. And I know my sheep and am known by my own. My own know me. How do we know him? We know him because he revealed himself. We know him because he says he is these things. We know him because we've experienced him. You see, Jesus is not someone who rests in our intellect. If he just rests in our intellect, we've totally missed what he was all about. 
He wants us to take us beyond all that into the heart of who he truly is. Now, here's what we need to understand about how he's phrasing this conversation. We should recall that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in this conversation. The claims to be a good shepherd and Israel's true shepherd was in part a rebuke against them. He's basically saying, you've let them down. You, you don't measure up to, to what you were supposed to be. And, and, and as the influential teachers in Israel, they should have led the people to truth. They should have had the people uh, before themselves. They should have put the people before themselves. They should have served God's agenda rather than their own. He's basically saying to the religious establishment that day, you are considered a bad shepherd because you didn't lead people beyond to who I am. I am. Think about that. Again, it's so, these are powerful words. And then he says, I'm the resurrection over death. Now, how many of you, if Jesus didn't say that and someone else said that, would you consider that a pretty bold statement? Yeah. I'm the one who conquers death. What do we call death? Some call it the final enemy. Some call it a, a passageway. Some, some say it leads to another existence and all these wonderful things. But Jesus is basically saying, I am the resurrection. I am. Therefore, the resurrection rests in him. He's not just saying he, is, he will be resurrected. He says, I am the resurrection. I can handle the final enemy that we face. I can handle anything that's presented to you basically in your life. So what does he say in John eleven twenty five? 25? Jesus said to her, he's speaking to, to, to the sisters of uh, basically of Lazarus. He said, I'm the resurrection in life. He's basically saying, yeah, Lazarus is gone, but let me just tell you, I'm the one that holds the key to whether someone lives or dies. He who believes in me, though he may die physical death, he shall live. Again, what is he doing? He's pointing them. The phrase I am is pointing them beyond this world. He's basically saying you have an existence that's capable of being beyond this world. And what's even more impressive with that is it's an existence with me. With me. Again, these are powerful words. Now, similar to other I am statements, Jesus doesn't just talk about who, what he can give or do. He's talking about who he is. It's the essence of who he is when he says this. He doesn't just give bread. He is the bread. He's the sustainer. He, he doesn't merely reflect light. He is the light. Think about that. So, also, in John chapter 11, what does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. The next I am passage is one that Jonathan covered last week. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, uh, basically, to God. So I'm the way, truth, and life to God. So John 14, 6, the same verse Jonathan used last week. Jesus said to him, he's speaking to, to, to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know what Jesus was doing? Jesus was basically blowing up the whole idea of people's views on how to come to God. He was blowing it out of the water. He was basically saying, no, 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 you think doing certain things, you think keeping the law the best you can is, is the right way, and you're going to see the Father because you did that. But, but he's calling them out, and he's basically saying, no, 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 all that that you're talking about, 
It all rests in me and in me only. Again, how many of you think that's a pretty powerful statement? Do you hear the authority in that statement? He's saying, put all those things that you're thinking aside. It's not going to get you there. Good works, being baptized all itself. These things are not there. Church membership. No, 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 no. It is through me and by me that this will happen. Think about that. I'm the way. I'm the path. Again, if anyone else said that apart from Jesus, we would probably have them committed, wouldn't we? I remember one time I was preaching at a church, a, lo- a church here locally, and I, I probably at that time probably had, had uh, preached maybe 10 messages up to that point in my lifetime. And so it was a Sunday night. I was at this church. Uh, they were actually on TV. And I didn't know that until I went there. And they hooked me up to these microphones. One was for the room. One was for the TV. And, and of course, I'm sitting there. And, and I was already intimidated going to this particular church because it's very known in our community. And, and I was there. And, and, and I'm just going to tell you, if I wasn't intimidated, I was even more intimidated that I had two microphones. They had this. They had that. Lo and behold, they made me sit on the stage. How many of you know churches you used to sit on the stage and wait for your time as the pastor, that kind of thing? So I was up there, and there was a gentleman out there who got excited about the music that day, and he, he just yells out amen. I mean, he had to be at least 30 yards from me, and it, it, it literally almost caused me to wet my pants. I mean, I was, <laughs> I, I, was a, I was a nervous wreck. Well, lo and behold, it didn't end there. I preach this message, and I go down to give the invitation. I'm standing there, and people are singing, and people's coming. And this gentleman comes up. <laughs> And here's what he said. He said, I'm the one you're looking for. I said, excuse me? He said, I am he. That's his words. I am he. I am he. Well, by that time, two big old guys came and escorted him off to the side. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm wondering, what in the world is just happening here? Hey, have you ever been in something that everything so str- seems so strange and so strange? and so? Str- Did you think you're dreaming? I literally thought I was dreaming through that whole thing. But the point was, when, and this is what caused me to think about this, the words that Jesus said. When that gentleman who came forward that night said, I am he, I am the one you're looking for, it freaked me out. Jesus is saying this to a world that's never heard these words. Think about that. The power in these words. Next, he says, I'm the true vine to fruitful living. He's basically saying, if you want a fruitful life, if you want a life that's going to live beyond this reality, be in me. So in John chapter 15, verse 1, he said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, when he said that, the Jews would have known immediately what he's talking about. Because that was an illustration that was commonly used to describe the nation of Israel. And he's basically saying, I am the true vine. When he says that, what's he implying? that there are fake vines out there, right? And he's saying, I am that vine. And my father is the vine dresser. He owns the vineyard. And then he says, I am the, look in verse five. I am the vine, and then who are we? You are the branches. He's literally saying, I am the life-giving force to your life. I am the one, if anything happens here, this of any rate towards God, it's going to happen through me. And it will only happen through me. And then he says this, he who abides in me and I in him, 
What's going to happen? What will be that thing that we'll see? You're going to bear much fruit. For without me, you can't do anything. Again, think of the boldness and the authority that he's speaking here. We've never heard anyone speak like this. Jesus speaks of a vine, a common Old Testament symbol for Israel, God's people. And the language of the unfruitful branches is tied to Israel. And he's basically saying, and and we get this from Isaiah chapter 5, that they are a desolate vineyard. But Jesus says the true people of God have life and fruit. And now now by being in him, that he's the life-giving source. So let me ask you a question. Someone comes along and says these words to you, what do you think? Just like that gentleman that came to me at the end of that service. I think you'd be pretty freaked out. I I think you'd be, but here's Jesus. He comes on the scene. And and let me just say this. It wasn't a few people hearing this. Thousands of people were hearing this. And the thousands of people, uh, the people beyond those thousands of people who didn't hear, it was said to others. He was making a mark. No wonder the the Jewish community, religious community was going crazy. Who says these things? But it was his words, his words. He was literally equating himself, not only to God, but he was saying, I have the character of God and I have the provision of God for you. And it comes through me. Wow. Next, we see the authoritative words, his power. Speaks of his omnipotence. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. I told you this is going to be a glorified Bible study. Here it is. Now, here's what I want you to think about. I've been been reading this book, and this book's really helped me to confirm and affirm some of the ideas that, that God's been showing me about the words of Jesus. But this book pointed something out that I'd never considered before. It's not only what Jesus said that made him such an authority or authoritative person or what he said. It's also some of the things he didn't say. I want you to think about this. Jesus never talked about his own faith. You won't find it anywhere. Now, did he trust his heavenly father? Absolutely. But he didn't need the kind of faith we need. Why? Because he was the essence of everything that that faith is directed towards. Think about that. He never came on the scene and said, yeah, my faith is growing in God. And boy, the more this world opens up and the things I experience, boy, I tell you, my faith is reassured. (laughs) Jesus never needed that. And that's the reason his authority was so powerful. Another thing Jesus never did. He never says the Lord says. 400, over 440 times the prophets said, the Lord says. No, he didn't speak from that authority. He spoke from his own authority. Think about that. He didn't need that. Did he, did he quote the Old Testament? Yes, he did. But the reason he was quoting the Old Testament is to show that he was the fulfillment and the embodiment of what it was to do. But he never said, the Lord says. no. He was speaking from his own authority. And so we go to the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Matthew chapter 5 through chapters 5 through 7 is all about. Greatest sermon ever preached. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. First of all, the religious people who were standing there watching and, and, and who knew anything about the Jewish faith, would they be offended by that? That he thinks he even has the capability to do that? 
Think about those words. He said, I didn't come to destroy it. Take nothing from it. I'm not coming here to take anything from that. I did not come to destroy, but what? To fulfill. He's basically saying, I'm not trying to create a cult that is contrary to the Old Testament or take away anything that the Old Testament is saying. I came, listen to this, to complete its meaning, to accomplish what is foretold, to completely satisfy the requirements that it says need to be fulfilled. Think about that. Jesus was a perfect embodiment of the law. He broke it in no way. Was he accused of breaking the law? Absolutely, by the Pharisees and Sadducees. But he didn't break the law of God. He broke their laws. They added to the, to the law. And, and so it's really amazing when you think about who he is, what he's saying here. Then we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 22 and 21. And, and basically, I want you to look at the first part of both of these verses. Sermon on the Mount. He's there. This is his coming out sermon, basically. And he's coming out to let the people know that he's the Messiah. Matthew, let me tell you a little bit about Matthew. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. Every time you read the book of Matthew, what you'll find is he's looking for ways to incorporate the Old Testament into his story about Jesus. And his goal is to convince you he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament to the Jew. Okay? But then Jesus goes a step further in this very popular sermon. He says, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, but look at this verse 22, the first part. But I say to you, now is Jesus taken away from what was formerly said? Well, there were times he did. Again, he wasn't referring to, the, to God's word. He was referring to the laws they made up. But in this context, what Jesus is doing, he's basically taking them, them to a whole new level of what, who God is. You see, before, it seemed to be everything was based on whether you fulfilled the law or not. Have you read the Old Testament? Whether you fulfill the law or not. And basically, Jesus is calling out the religious establishment. He's saying, hey, listen, now, you may not have committed murder, but in your heart you have. You may not have committed adultery, but in your heart you have. He's basically saying it's not just about the sterile events of what you do and what you don't do. God is desiring your heart. He wants something much deeper, and he's speaking with this authority. He's bringing clarity to the words of God. He says the same thing in verses 27 and 28. So fulfilling the law, listen to this. He's basically saying it's not just a thing you do with your mind or just some things that you do or don't do. It's a heart thing. God's coming in such a way to bring you to a point of relationship with him. Then Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 is where we... I believe we have some of the most horrifying words in all of Scripture. And, and Jesus is basically, I mean, he's calling, he's calling it all out. I mean, he's not leaving anything undone. I mean, how would you like for this to be your first message? And think about the authority he's speaking with. Then he comes to this, verse 21, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, if you were out there and you were at a religious establishment, you, you, Lord, Lord. Now, in the back of our minds, we know they're thinking, this guy's from Nazareth. This guy's from a nowhere place. God's going to reveal himself. He's going to do it through us. 
We're, we're the keepers of the law. We're the, we're the ones who hold the revelation of God. And if, he gonna, if he's going to do it, it's going to come from us. So they're sitting there thinking, who is this guy? Think about what he says next. Many will say to me in that day. You know what that day is? Judgment day. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawless, lawlessness. Think about that. Who is he equating himself to? I'm going to be the final judge of everything. Wow. Pretty bold, wouldn't you think? Pretty bold. These are the words of Jesus. Next, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Here's what people took from that sermon. And this is really big, y'all. Verse 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. First of all, if you were there that day, would that sermon have blown you away? It would have. And the culture it was set in. and I mean, just the, the words today can blow us away. But there's a guy who comes on the scene from Galilee, and, and he's basically teaching all this. And, and there's this whole idea. And it says the people were astonished at his teaching. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. But look at verse 29. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were the interpreters of the law. The scribes were the ones that if there was a, uh, a misinterpretation or if someone was reading it wrong, they would correct it. They were the keepers of correcting scriptures and perceptions that are not in scripture. And so these people who said, hey, even the experts in the Bible, this guy's beyond them. And y'all, that would have been a big deal. That would have been a big deal. He doesn't say I'm speaking for the word of God. He says what? I'm speaking the word of God because I am God. I am he. Wow. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We're about to read about a conversation that Jesus is getting ready to have in his hometown of Nazareth. And what's amazing about the conversation we're about to read is the fact that after Jesus had this conversation with him, and basically it was more of a preaching time, teaching time, they want to kill him. They literally want to kill him after he says what he says. So he's there in Nazareth. Look at verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he was brought up. I guess I didn't need to say that. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So basically, these are people that as Jesus was growing up, it was his custom to go to the church, probably uh, synagogues, probably something like what we have here, walks in. Let's just say that one of us who's here about every Sunday, and we normally will go up and read scripture, or we'll do whatever it takes to, 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 to bring the worship or whatever. Suppose one of us from this town... We watched you grow up. You've become a man, pretty cool, because you're doing amazing things. But all of a sudden, you stand up, and he says this. He was handed, verse 17, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, verse 18, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, that was a common verse, passage. That's a verse, a passage basically linking uh, a person who will become the Messiah. Okay? The Messiah. And then they had their eyes on him. He's already seated. And they're staring at him. <laughs> and then he says this. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Again, what is he saying? I am he. I am he. I am the one. Again, grew up in the neighborhood. They watched him play when he was a child in the streets. The son of a carpenter. And all of a sudden, he stands in the synagogue and he says, I am he. The one you're looking for is me. Again, we're so familiar with the Bible because we've all grown up with the whole idea of Jesus in our minds and our hearts. And all of a sudden, you know, we, we, we just kind of give it credence. But put yourself in the context of what was going on there. Do you know what happened next? They literally tried to kill him. They literally rose up and wanted to kill him. Did they kill him? Absolutely not. You know why? Because Jesus basically said, it's not my time to die. Any of you ever pulled that one off? <laughs> Pretty spectacular. Luke chapter 8, he's traveling across the Sea of Galilee. Luke chapter 8, look at verse 24. And the disciples came to him, came to Jesus, woke him up. Master, master, we are perishing. Remember, they're in the ship, the boat, going across the Sea of Galilee. And he basically says, we're perishing here. Do you even care is really the concept here. Then he arose, <laughs> rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Anybody done that one? But he said to them, verse 25, where's your faith? And they were afraid and marveled. How many of you, that would have been your response? Who are you? Wouldn't that be what you'd be saying? And they said to one, one another, who can, can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Again, we've always known the story. But do we hear the authoritative words that he's saying here? John chapter 10, verse 30. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the Jews, and he says, I and my Father are one. We exist together. There's no difference between me and God. How many of you, that would have blown your mind? John chapter 8, verse 58. Again, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Jews. They're accusing him of being demon-possessed. And he says this right there. I mean, they let it be known. They thought he was demon-possessed. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. I was. I am. I will be. What is he doing? He's taking himself out of time. He's not bound by time. And he's saying, I am. Now, was Abraham a big deal to them? 
father of the faith, and you're saying you existed before Abraham? And you say, yeah. Again, mind-blowing, the authority. Next, the simplistic words, his brilliance, his relatability. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to have to hurry through this. But again, this is a Bible study. And, and some of this, I'll put the scripture there for you to see it yourself. But Jesus, Jesus, his deity, think about it. When he came on the scene, he was communicating to his creation. You get that, right? We, we discovered that in Colossians chapter 1. So when Jesus came on the scene, the creator was communicating to his creation, okay? And yet, he, was, he was, had the ability to relate and explain the secrets and mysteries of God. Who can pull that off? I remember being in college and, and um, sitting under certain professors. And, and I don't know about you. I'm a simple man. <laughs> I'm a simple person. I have a simple mind. Just give it to me you know, just tell it to me in a way. And it was almost like these guys sometimes were trying to trip me up. How many of you remember those days? You remember? It's like, just tell it. And I don't care how smart you are and how big a word you can use. Give me something I can take out of here, you know? And I remember sitting there the whole time thinking, and this is me thinking, okay, you're a terrible teacher. <laughs> you can't tell me that information in a way I can get it. But you know who did? Jesus. He told them information that they should have gotten. Did they get it all the time? Nope. Even Jesus at times was like, and again, he knew everything. I'm not talking about, I'm not taking away from his sovereignty. But even Jesus was sitting there and saying, you don't get it yet? But he couldn't have put it any simpler. And I'm here to tell you, when I read the Psalms, I mean, excuse me, when I read the parables that, that he used, I get it. Does that mean I'm smarter than they are? No. It goes on to describe that no one had ever come in contact with anyone like this. You see, when I read God's word, I understand the context of who Jesus was. you got to understand those who followed him, that context was being revealed more and more to them before they had the big picture. We probably would have been in the same situation. But he was explaining the mystery. So what did he do? He used relevant parables. The Bible says in Matthew 13, 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable, he did not speak to them. He's basically saying, I'm going to try to put it on the bottom shelf, okay? That it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet saying, again, this is Matthew telling the Jewish audience, here's another way Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter these, key, key, uh, these things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Skip down to Matthew 13, verse 45. Again, here, here's one of his parables. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when they found one pearl of great price, he went out, sold all that he had, and he bought it. You know what he was describing there? All his parables pointed back to the principles of the kingdom of God. And he was basically saying someone found what they were looking for. It satisfied, it completed, it was everything they needed, and they sold everything they had. They turned their back on everything this world had to offer for that, for that. He used parables. Next, he gave unexpected answers. I want you to think about it. Peter's out there. Jesus is describing, literally describing how his life is going to end. Peter, don't you love Peter? We all love Peter. We love Peter on Wednesday nights. Boy, we, we, when we were doing a study of Peter, I mean, Peter is our guy. Peter, listen, 
Peter's saying, Lord, it ain't going to happen as long as I'm around. They're not going to take you and do this. Okay? You remember the story? You know what Jesus' response to him? Get behind me, Satan. He's looking at Peter. Can you imagine what Peter was sitting there thinking? But Jesus did this a lot. And Jesus knew where that actually came from. And it wasn't that he was trying to be ugly towards Peter. It was the fact that he was calling it what it was because he saw what it really was. And he did that a lot. But there was times he gave unexpected answers. He did it before Pilate. Next, he connected with human weakness. Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. What do we read? Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. How about this? The woman at the well. He went to her. He approached her. He had a conversation with her when no Jew, no man would have ever had a conversation with a woman such as her. Again, he connected. Nicodemus, the educated Pharisee. Jesus blew that man's mind. He literally did. You must be born again. Nicodemus, I mean, he was a very educated person. And the thing was, he wasn't trying to trip up Jesus. He was one of the few Pharisees who didn't want to do that. He was there honestly trying to understand who Jesus says he was. And Jesus made it very relatable in the conversation. Thomas and his doubts. Jesus related to human weakness. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples are asleep. And what does he say? He goes three times and he says this. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. He understood. Jesus telling John to take care of his own mother. We read these stories. And then Peter in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. Peter's already denied Jesus three times. Jesus told him it was even going to happen. And then in John chapter 21, we see that Jesus is restoring Peter. And the way he restores him is a beautiful scene. And Peter basically just collapses. Jesus was literally restoring Peter out of his human weakness to a place where God could use him in a powerful way. And did he? Absolutely. Absolutely. The perfect words, his conversations. If you were to say, okay, give me some ideas that are words that describe his conversations. He was compassionate. He was approachable. Didn't the children want to come hang out with him? Did you read that? Don't. He, he basically got onto the disciples because the children wanted to come around. Uh, uh, engaging, empathetic, challenging, direct. And all that kind of describes how he used his words, and we saw it. But here's what we know about Jesus. Number one, he was never manipulated. He was never manipulated. You say, how can that be? The woman at the well. I'm sorry, the woman called an adulterer. Do you remember the story? The scribes and the Pharisees went through this woman at the feet of Jesus. Master, she's been uh, caught in adultery. What do we do with her? They were trying to trap him. What did he do? What we think he did, based on how it played out, he squatted down and started writing the accuser's sins on the ground, possibly. And what does the Bible say? They were ready to stone her. They dropped their stones and walked away. He, he could never be manipulated. Listen to what it says in John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He knew the hearts of people. He knew they weren't the real deal. He, he, they, they, he, to them, he was just a sideshow doing all these signs and wonders. 
And Jesus didn't make any investment in them, he says. He moved on. And it said this in verse 25, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. When he came upon someone, he knew the need. He knew what needed to be said. How many of you have ever had a conversation with someone and walked away and thought, man, I wish I'd have said that. You you know what I'm talking about? Now, most of you are evil because you want to get them. You're trying to gig them is what you're trying to do. But you know something? Jesus never walked away from a conversation and thought, man, that would have been the perfect thing to say in that situation. Mm -mm. Neither was he manipulated. Next, he never argued. When he talked to, to people, he just made it direct. He spoke with authority. He just spoke it. He never squandered an opportunity. The Bible says in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, we read that Jesus left Judea, departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go there? It wasn't the path most Jews took. Why did he need to go there? Because there was an appointed time he had with that woman at the well. And that woman at the well, I don't know if you've read the whole story. Her story literally created an urgency to to come to Jesus. That's a powerful moment for the Samaritans. We see that. Next, he never second-guessed himself. Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick. He said, well, we're going to stay here a couple more days, or he did. He goes back, and of course, Lazarus is dead. But he basically went into that scenario saying, basically, this is the way it's supposed to be played out, that God may be glorified. I mean, think about that. He never second-guessed himself. That was exactly the way it was supposed. He didn't sit there and say, man, I wish I'd have got here sooner. Next, he never gave the wrong response. He told people what would happen next. He told Peter, you're going to deny me. He did this. He said that. He never gave the wrong response. Next, he never lost composure. Some of you say, well, when he went into the temple twice, start whipping the money changers. What do we have there? He never lost his composure. The Bible says he literally went and made the whip he would use. (laughs) He was bringing discipline to the house. Never lost composure. During the high priest questioning, they were slapping him, hitting him, mocking him. Never lost composure. Before Pilate, all the conversations about it, never lost composure. So here's the application. When Jesus spoke, here's what we can gather. Based on the authority of his words, when Jesus spoke, God was speaking. This means the God who spoke the world into existence revealed himself through the extraordinary words of Jesus. And the question is this, when it's all said and done, what will be your response to his words? In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, here's what Jesus said. For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has come to seek and to save That which is lost. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the ones who said these words? If you don't, he invites you to come. The creator of the universe invites you to come to him. To a place where you can be fully satisfied in him. God desires that. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you right now. We just thank you for your word. Lord, I'm still in awe of the words of Jesus. And I thank you for this study you put on my heart uh, literally months ago to, to really look in and see what you were truly saying through your son. And Father, it's so amazing to see the authority in which he spoke.
The way he related to human weakness. The way that he, he challenged those who were before him. Father, we, we come away thinking he's definitely is like no other because he exists outside of time. And Father, I just pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know this Jesus that, that spoke these words of authority, that they would come to know him as their Lord and Savior. Father, there's someone here, Lord. I just pray, Lord, they'll reach out to someone. Reach out to a pastor before they leave here. But Father, most of all, that they would follow through in knowing that you desire to be everything to them. In Jesus' name, amen.